This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. Okay. Hello, everyone. I thought I'd try something new again today. I thought I'd see what you have to say um, and respond to some of your comments on the video. Uh, very basic, very quick, very informal. Excuse the, uh, the no-frills atmosphere. I like to keep it no-frills here on Then and Now. Um, but I'll start with the rules video on uh, a theory of justice and maybe come to uh, property-owning democracy at some point in the future. Uh, let's see how it goes. So, <clears throat> let's have a look. I won't respond to all of them, of course. Um, Amir Eardham says, This looks suspiciously similar to what Pierre Proudhon advocated 136 130 years earlier from the rules. Even the arguments of fairness and justice were almost the same, not to mention equality of access to the property of work. Although rules concluded private property is a right in and of itself, Proudhon concluded it is an impossibility and theft. It would be really cool to see a comparison video. Um, yeah, I haven't read Proudhon for a while. I've read what is property or parts of it in the past. Um, but yeah, I can see where the similarities are. The differences uh, straight off the bat would be Proudhon was an anarchist and a mutualist, of course. Um, Rawls was very much a statist. So Rawls would advocate for a procedural set of rights and laws. Um, that could exist under the framework of the state. Whereas for Proudhon, from what I remember, um, he was very much in favour of voluntary mutualist contracts. Um, but I think where the similarities are is they, they both would favour a kind of small-scale enterprise model. And both were, of course, very wary of how larger corporations and enterprises would, would enterprises would soon take on too much power um, and would have to be in some way uh, publicly or worker uh, run owned managed um, so yeah I think it would be interesting to do a comparison video at some point um, and in fact uh, what is property is on my reading list I'm going to make a video on that at some point in the future mm. But thank you for that one. Ryan Springer says, I surpassed my parents' wealth due to self-accountability. My brother still lives with my mum because he blames a system and everyone else for his failures rather than himself. Um, of course, we can see where this is going. This is a kind of Jordan Peterson take. We both inherited nothing, but my brother has gotten more handouts from my family and the government, and yet he still blames them instead of his actions. So what is the reason for this disparity mindset? I choose not to be a victim while he loves to claim to be one. Uh, edit, he is my older brother as well, just in case anyone was wondering. Yeah, this is kind of the Jordan Peterson critique. I mean, I don't think it says much alone for quite a simple reason. Of course, there are people that are going to blame the system and also not do well from it, not have any, um, any self-accountability, uh, as you put it. Um, 
But I mean, there are people that will believe the system is good and do well. There are people that will believe the system is good and not do well. People that believe the system isn't good and do well. People believe that the system isn't good and not do well. So of course, all of these types of people are going to exist. Um, Self-accountability, I don't think, has anything to do with... I mean, of course, there's going to be a culture that encourages a kind of self-accountability within any um, political, economic, historic system. But just to shut down any critique of that system um, and prioritise self-accountability is just ahistorical. And you can see this by imagining yourself having that uh, having that attitude in, for example, a slave society. You know, my brother was a slave um, and he, uh, he, he did uh, very, very poorly because all he did was blame everyone else. I'm a slave, I've done very well, I've moved up, I've got more rations. You can imagine this attitude during the, the suffragettes movement in, uh, in early 20th century England. Um, you know, why don't you just be quiet and get on with it and then maybe you'll do well. If everyone had that attitude, a system, whatever system it is, wouldn't change. And politics always needs to change and progress and move for, move forward. So, you know, I understand there's a balance, but I don't think the critique holds out. But thank you for your comment. Let's see. Um, Pez, 63 says, the depiction of Rawls' arguments against utilitarianism make him, make him look like he doesn't understand utilitarianism at all. I mean, right off the bat, I'm worried here. I mean, Rawls was one of the most influential political philosophers of the 20th century. I'm sure he does understand utilitarianism at the most. Um, utilitarianism isn't do what gives people the most total money regardless of its distribution. No, he doesn't, he doesn't think that. Um, but would instead obviously say not to starve and malnourish 40% of your people for only 10% profit. Because that 10% very likely isn't going to be capable of buying so much more utility than the utility lost from such starvation and suffering associated with such poverty. I'm not sure if this depiction of Rawls' argument was accurate or if maybe the summary left out a few key details, but I'm curious... Uh, which it is. I mean, yes, in the example you gave, there is a utilitarian, utilitarian uh, solution, and it is you do not malnourish 40% of the population uh, for the benefit of an extra $10. Of course, that's not the greatest good for all. That's not what Rawls is saying. <clears throat> what Rawls is saying is there are, if you move the dial slightly and become a little bit more extreme, there are examples where utilitarianism justifies things that seem like they violate, violate our basic uh, integrity, our basic rights. Um, so, for example, if you move the dial down in your example to malnourish 10% of the people for enough profit to make the others much, much happier, at some point, utilitarianism does ju justify that. Um, 
In other words, there is no uh, mechanism within the utilitarian, utilitarian framework for upholding rights of individual people. And this is why the doctor's um, example works well. Um, the doctor example shows that you can violate individuals' rights, you could harvest their organs, say, if they were old, frail, uh, uh, poor, miserable, weren't going to bring joy and happiness to anyone, if you were then giving those organs to a doctor, an entertainer, someone that's going to bring much more net happiness. So his point is that there's no mechanism uh, within the utilitarian framework to account for individual rights. Um, <clears throat> there's another good example, uh, I'm not sure whose who this is, of the innocent man that says, imagine uh, a city rioting and hundreds of people have been injured and dying and it's going on for weeks and weeks and weeks and it's essentially going to um, lead to thousands more deaths um, and it's based on a falsehood that was misinformation and a policeman is in the position to falsify uh, evidence and frame an innocent, ma innocent man and blame him and he will never be found out and it will stop the rioting. So for, in sacrificing one innocent man in framing him and sending him to prison, you are bringing a greater level of happiness and uh, tranquility and prosperity to the rest of the city, ending the riots. So again, we have the individual rights problem. It doesn't protect the individual rights. Now, there is a solution to this within utilitarianism, and I do think you can get to a point where Rawls's theory and utilitarianism could be the same. It's raw utilitarianism. You could say that, well, um, if, you've, if the doctor violates that patient's rights, or the policeman violates, violates the rights of an innocent man, or you malnourish even 0. 5% of your population um, on purpose, um, then as more and more people find out what's going on, they become more suspicious, <clears throat> they don't trust the system or the police or the doctors that lead into this, and of course it's going to end <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, less happiness um, for all in the future. And so the best utilitarian um, uh, 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 framework to have is to have a system of individual rights that cannot be violated and you have to follow the rules even if um, a violation of the rules would lead to more happiness in the short term because following a set of rules leads to the greater net prosperity in the long term. So there are similarities there, but I think that once you start inserting rules like this, especially rules to do with specific rights, it becomes unrecognisable as utilitarianism and it becomes uh, something else. So it's a critique of utilitarianism maybe being a bit too broad in this sense. <clears throat> but thank you. Let's move on. Manny. 
says, Oddly generous take on rules for our times. Please, it's only from a white supremacist bubble that he can be considered the greatest theorist on justice, despite mentioning race only a handful of superficial times. His injustice, excuse me, his injustice is a simple straw man which serves to eclipse and reinforce the much more insidious injustice of systemic discrimination. Um, generous, maybe. Um, I do aim to be generous in all of my videos, whether I agree with the thinker or not. Um, I do try to criticize a bit at the end, but I essentially just try and say what the uh, thinker is saying. Um, okay, so despite mentioning race, only a handful of superficial times. Now, I disagree with superficial here. The veil of ignorance is meant to address problems of identity, of race, of sexism. Um, and it's not superficial, it's built into the very foundation. It's fundamental to a theory of justice. It, um, his injustice is a simple straw man, which serves to eclipse and reinforce the much more insidious injustice of systemic discrimination. So he builds it in fundamentally without mentioning it, mentioning race specifically, because he is interested in procedural justice. So he's interested in addressing systemic discrimination in a way that is blind to it too, which is difficult to do. He wants to be able to say, look, you can't say in a system we need to specifically address and I mean a philosophical universalizable system, you, that we need to uh, address the systemic uh, discrimination towards African-Americans, historic discrimination, say. Because once you say that, it's not universalizable. It's a specific uh, critique commentary on that case. So you move into a different context, Japan, China, Mars, wherever, it suddenly loses its, its, uh, its claim to be a theory, a, a blind universal theory of justice. What Rawls attempted to do was build discrimination into the theory in a way which doesn't mention the form the discrimination takes. So, I mean, the whole thing is built around address your attention to those that are least advantaged. And, you know, maybe it doesn't go as far as you'd like, but to claim that that is superficial, I think is a misunderstanding. Um, but I do understand where you're coming from. I think you, what you probably want is a bit more of an affirmative action philosophy. But I'm putting words in your mouth. Let's move on. Okay, as a dial, what have you got to say? So how is that better than utilitarianism, which postulates the general idea that more equal distribution of wealth, or more generally uh, of efforts meant to maximize the good, leads to the great good? That's something which could easily be rationally justified. Food is worth more to the starving person than to the rich person who already has plenty of food. Okay, 
I have addressed this uh, uh, before. I'll continue. I did scan these before. Uh, Thus, you will do a greater good by giving food to the starving person than to the rich person. And this will be true to some extent, even if you have the choice between giving a simple sandwich to the starving person, giving nothing to the rich person, or giving a refined meal prepared by a five Michelin star chef to the rich person and giving nothing to the starving one. Um, so at 6.55 with a utilitarian mindset, I can perfectly argue that the second situation is better than the first one. And more generally, all principles that rules considered to be necessary to adjust society are compatible with and can be justified by utilitarianism. Uh, okay, in that case, in, in your example again, giving food to a starving person rather than a rich person is doing a greater good. That is uh, a subjective claim and it only works on the basis that the starving person, once he is revitalized, is going to do more net good uh, for others. So you're tallying it up. Um, and that the rich person isn't going to do more good. This is a hypothetical scenario, remember. The problem isn't that you could do those things, that you could justify it. The problem is that utilitarianism can imagine a scenario, or the utilitarian can imagine a scenario where a starving person, uh, say a depressed, elderly, lone person. I mean, this was Dostoevsky's point in Crime and Punishment, that a horrible person, say an immoral person, is not going to do more if you satiate them with that sandwich than the joyful, uh, charitable, rich person. That there are scenarios where it would be utilitarian to starve the poor person and to give the sandwich to the rich person. Um, And again, it's a problem of rights. So, Robert Nozick came up with the concept of a utility monster. And he said, some people derive more utility from joyful actions than others. And again, so you can imagine a poor person who is very depressed, who doesn't get any joy from anything. And if this was Bentham's hedonic calculus, which means if you could tally up every uh, portion of good you were doing, if you could calculate everything across society, um, I can't remember what he called the units of happiness, um, uh, uh, but say you give the sandwich to the poor, depressed, ill, elderly person, they get two units of happiness from it, and then they pass on another unit of happiness to someone else from the actions that have been derived from them being satiated by the sandwich. When the rich person is a joyful, happy, charitable, one could say, give them the sandwich. They are utility monsters. This is Nozick's term. They are utility monsters. It's not just they're going to do more good. They take so much joy from everything. They eat that sandwich and they just feel ecstatic from it. 
and so they take 10 points of happiness. So again, utilitarianism seems to justify that you starve certain people for the benefit of the better off, the happier, um, the younger, um, and maybe the whiter, as we saw um, during COVID at the beginning, um, that when it comes to um, um, when it comes to choosing who uh, you are going to save as a doctor, um, you save the one that's most likely to survive. Um, and of course, if you're in a room with a wide demographic of people, old, young, white, black, whatever the, uh, whatever the country is, um, there are certain people that are more likely to survive because they are more economically prosperous. So the systemic uh, uh, healthcare biases there um, would tend towards saving young white men over old black ladies for example. So that's a problem of utilitarianism too. Okay, moving on. Thank you for your comment, Lou. Mm -mm. Dorian Sapiens says, this comes up a bit where the video notes that Rawls' theory of justice is compatible with both a liberal capitalist and a libertarian socialist society but it seems like a significant weakness in the theory that its arguments could be employed to justify a neoliberal economic order. In fact, it often is. We must allow the captains of industry to accumulate wealth unimpeded by social controls because that is what allows them to create jobs, innovate, technologies, etc., to the benefit of everyone. That's the difference principle, right? Um, I see what you're saying. I think that it, it is a weakness in a way that it can um, it can fit so many models of society. It's also a strength um, in that it does clearly discount many models. It writes them off straight away. Um, obviously, fascism, slavery, or the rest of it, but it does write off a neoliberal economic order too. So. That's the difference principle, right? You say, uh, no, that's not exactly. Because, well, you say it here. We must allow the captains of industry to accumulate wealth unimpeded by social controls. Rawls does not say that at all. He says, if the captains of industry are doing good that is raising those at the bottom two, then it justifies their inequality. You know, it doesn't justify unlimited inequality. It actually justifies very small amounts of inequality. It wouldn't justify, he doesn't justify billionaires and Bezos and Bill Gates. He thinks that once you get to that point, it's very clear that their wealth is harming the rest simply by the amounts of political power they exercise. Um, so, you know, he does allow, the, and he does talk about entrepreneurs specifically, so you're right that he does allow captains of industry to accumulate more wealth and be rewarded uh, more highly um, than people that aren't as industrious, say, but it's certainly not unimpeded. It is very much impeded by social controls, and it's, um, 
and it would be through an aggressive taxation and inheritance system. Um, you know, as he said, as I said in the second video on property owning democracies, um, he would very much argue that something like Amazon at this point has gotten so big and there's so much wealth in the hands of Jeff Bezos, the first world's first trillionaire almost, um, that it very much justifies uh, being taken into public hands, workers' hands specifically, um, and that it's clear that the, the amount of wealth that Bezos continues to accumulate is to the detriment of those that are stagnant at the bottom and have been for a long time. So yeah, that is certainly um, something that Rawls would not justify uh, in a theory of justice. Okay, so last one. Improve yourself says, to elaborate further on your bus analogy, why do all the villages have a right to a bus service? Were those people in the village not being served forcibly located to said village? Did they not choose to live there knowing that there was no bus service? Is the bus service subsidized or not, state-owned or private? What if they moved there specifically to avoid the bus service? Surely sending buses impedes in their right to be left alone. What gives the entity providing buses the right to arbitrarily group people together? I mean, yeah, I think you're taking the analogy a bit too far. The point was that the bus is an analogy for the right to life. And actually, if you change, if you change bus in your comment to life, uh, you'll see exactly what Rose is saying. Why do all the, and actually if you change villages to people, sorry. Uh, why do all the people have a right to life? Uh, were those people not being served forcibly located, served forcibly located uh, to where they are? Did they not choose to live there knowing there was no bus service? You know, were they not born knowing that they were in a deprived area? And then the, the, the subsidised or not, the state owned or the private, I think becomes superfluous. No, the point is that it is very much an analogy for the right to human life. Um, so, yeah, I'll move on. Okay, that's it. Uh, I quite enjoyed doing that. I think I'll continue to do that a bit more in the future. Um, tiny bit of news, I have just launched a website, it's a little side project, um, so it's a work in progress. It's www.lewwaller.com uh, and if you go forward slash newsletter, I've started a newsletter uh, where every week I'm going to news on what I'm thinking about. Uh, what the next video is going to be, any extra thoughts I have, and that will go straight to your inbox. Um, so I think I'll leave it there today. Thanks for watching. See you next time.